This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Romans 3, 24 and 25 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. But 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16 also says, But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. For the first few centuries after the apostolic church, there was not a great deal of reflection about how to relate justification that act of God, whereby believers are freely accepted by God for Christ's sake alone, to the necessity of holiness. The first person to raise this question seriously was a British monk who thought that Roman Christians were morally lazy and sloppy. He taught that Adam did not act for us and that each of us is like Adam when we're born. We may fall into sin or we may remain righteous if we exercise our free will. Augustine replied by turning to Paul's doctrine of sin and grace, but the medieval church gradually eclipsed Augustine's views in favor of something like Pelagius' view. The Reformation rejected Pelagius completely, but since the 16th and 17th centuries, Pelagius or Semi-Pelagius has made a comeback, and his views have gained wide acceptance among evangelicals in the modern period. One frequently hears evangelical Christians saying that God accepts us to the degree we are sanctified. Is that true? Mike Horton is the J. Gresham Machen Professor of Systematic Theology and Apologetics at Westminster Seminary, California. And he's here to help us sort through the question of how to relate justification to sanctification. He's the author of many books, including The Gospel-Driven Life and Christless Christianity, both of which are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Mike, and welcome back to Office Hours. Hey, Scott. So these are two big terms in the history of Christian theology and two big terms in contemporary discussions, justification and sanctification. First of all, what do we mean by justification? And then after that, what do we mean by sanctification? Well, justification means that because the sins that are my own have been transferred to someone else, namely Jesus Christ, and his righteousness, his obedience is transferred to me or imputed to me, I am declared righteous before God. In other words, I have Christ's record and he has my record. We traded records. And the only way that we can receive this justification is through faith, because obviously his record is perfect. Our record is not. That means there's absolutely nothing we can do in order to participate or share in this justification. All we can do is receive it as a gift. And this faith that receives justification, therefore, is simply a resting in and receiving Christ for our justification. Faith itself has absolutely no quality that would merit God's acceptance. It's not because faith is a virtue. It's not because faith itself is fruitful in good works. It's because Christ died for us, and faith is the only way we can receive something that faith is called the instrument of justification. 
Westminster Shorter Catechism 33 asks, what is justification? And the answer is, justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardoneth all our sins and accepteth us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Yeah, what's really important about that statement and the Heidelberg Catechisms as well is that justification is not just as if I'd never sinned. That's forgiveness. Forgiveness is great, but justification is greater because if we were forgiven all of our sins, we would still perish because what was required of Adam and all of us in Adam was and remains perfect fulfillment of his law. So it's not enough that you haven't broken his law. It's not enough that our guilt for breaking the law is imputed to Christ unless you also have that positive righteousness that he requires. Basically, we're not saved by going back to zero. We're saved by 100%. And that's the wonder of justification. We're not only forgiven, but he receives us as if not only we had never sinned, but as if we had perfectly kept every one of God's laws throughout our life. And then the Shorter Catechism, question 35, asks, what is sanctification? And the answer is, sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. So justification is an act and sanctification is a work. Yes, that's a very important point. And it's, as the confession makes clear there, it's God's work. Sanctification is also God's work. It yields the fruit of sanctification, the fruit of repentance. But repentance and sanctification itself are God's gift to us. And it's important to distinguish here between the new birth and conversion. In the new birth, we're passive. We receive new life from Christ as a free gift. We don't cooperate in our spiritual resurrection. In justification, we're simply receiving a gift. And in conversion, we are actually repenting and believing. God is the subject of the action in the new birth. We are the subject of the action in conversion, because those who are now made alive are alive. It's like uh, a baby who is just born. If a baby is stillborn, then of course there is no activity on the baby's part. But if the baby is made alive, comes to life, and then comes out of the womb, doctor slaps him on the rear end and he starts wailing, that's his act. Everything after that is his action. It's the product of life though, right? But it's always the grace of God. It's always the fact that God is the one who is giving us this gift. In Jeremiah 31, the promise of the new covenant, which he contrasts with the Sinai covenant, is that God says, I will give you a new heart. I will write my law in your heart. I will forgive all of your sins and remember your iniquities no more. And so All of that, that whole package, Christ and all of his benefits, are given to us in that one and same act of saving faith. So justification is the act of God whereby he declares us righteous for Christ's sake. Sanctification is the process of conforming us to the image of Christ on the basis of that judicial verdict. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Sometimes when people hear the word conversion, they think of something different than what we mean by it. Sometimes they think of praying the prayer, walking the aisle, the initial coming to Christ. But when you say conversion, you're using it in a different sense, right? Right. I think that there is an initial conversion. Now, the problem comes not in affirming that there is an initial decisive conversion, moment of conversion, but in thinking that we can identify it. 
the place I remember where I was sitting. I remember the exact moment when I was converted. What you're thinking of is a psychological, emotional experience. Right, which may be wonderful, it may be true in a lot of Christians. For a lot of Christians, that's wonderful. But you don't know where the Spirit comes from, and you don't know where He's going. He operates secretly, wonderfully. And differently in every believer. And that's one of the wonderful things about the Spirit's work, that we're all different, and He, he works differently with each of us. And so conversion can come in a sudden flash you know, as it did for Martin Luther, apparently. Your heart can be strangely warmed. Yeah, he says when he understood what the Apostle Paul meant by the righteousness which is from God and is a gift, he said it was like the gates of paradise flung open, I was born again. Calvin, on the other hand, doesn't have a very good testimony. You know, he, <laughs> he would flunk the test in a lot of youth groups. What I think is important, what we would say to people is, you know what, if you have a memorable initial conversion experience where it was night and day. I've heard that they're wonderful, wonderful, encouraging testimonies. Thank God for it. It is a pledge of his goodness. But don't downgrade below that even one centimeter the experience of a brother or a sister who was raised in a Christian home, had the benefit of the means of grace, heard the word preached, water falling on the ground regularly, and brought forth fruit. The Word brought forth faith, and faith brought forth the fruit of the Spirit, and the person just grew in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank God for the means of grace that He provided so that that gradual conversion could be experienced by that person. But in any case, in any case, even if you've had a wow initial conversion experience. Conversion is also a lifelong, daily dying to ourselves, mortification, and rising to God, vivification. As always, really, it seems, whether in the medieval church or the Reformation or in the modern period, there is today considerable confusion about how to relate justification and sanctification. Some are concerned that if we sound the note the grace note so strongly to the exclusion of the call for sanctification that it will give people the impression that it won't produce in people the necessary response. Even the Belgic Confession in 1561 anticipated that when it says in Article 24, therefore, far from making people cold toward living in a pious and holy way, this justifying faith, quite to the contrary, so works within them that apart from it, they will never do a thing out of love for God, but only out of love for themselves and fear of being condemned. Right. I was at a um, Christian boarding school, and I spoke on Romans 8. I asked the question of the students. This was during a chapel lecture. Here is a quote from John Wesley. The doctrine of election, unconditional election, cannot be true because it discourages the primary motive for holiness, which is fear of punishment and hope of rewards. Now, how many of you agree with that? And it was a fairly generic evangelical institution, and they were younger folks, but based on what they'd grown up with, most of them put their hands up. I said, now what's wrong with that? And a lot of the same people put their hands up. They knew immediately what was wrong with it. And they said, well, it's selfish. Fear of punishment and hope of rewards. I said, exactly. You put your finger on it. Why did you raise your hand the first time? Why did you agree with it? And it got very silent. That's what they've heard. And so I said, just imagine, could it possibly be that the gospel message is to become more selfish than you have been in the past? The irony of it that the Belgic Confession points out there is once the gospel turns us outside of ourselves, 
where we're no longer trembling and fearful and insecure, trying to do everything we can to feather our own nest. Even everything that we do for our neighbor is really for ourselves. Instead of that, the gospel drives us out of ourselves to flee to Christ in faith and to our neighbor in love. So now we're no longer loving and serving our neighbors because we want brownie points with God. God has all of the good works he needs. God wants us to be his delivery, his errand boys and girls, to go out there and just simply deliver the gifts that he has for other people. That's such a, a wonderful grace liberating and world embracing view of good works. The irony is that that Rome, and not only Rome, but many forms of Protestantism, reverse this flow of gifts so that you don't have justification being declared righteous by God on account of Christ. Therefore, sanctification really is a process of meriting God's acceptance. And the Reformed, as well as the Lutherans, teach both justification and sanctification. In other words, if you deny justification, you don't get sanctification. If you affirm both, then you get the whole gospel in the bargain. The Belgic says, so then, it is impossible for this holy faith to be unfruitful in a human being, seeing that we do not speak of an empty faith, but of what Scripture calls, quoting here from James, faith working through love. No, that's not James. Quoting here from Paul, faith working through love, which leads a man to do by himself the works that God has commanded in his word. These works proceeding from the good root of faith are good and acceptable to God. Yeah, see, in the Roman Catholic perspective, love is the root of justification. Love makes faith a meritorious action on our part. And The reformer said, no, love is the fruit of faith, and good works are the fruit of love. So, you know, once the branch is grafted into Christ, it's not only identified with his righteousness objectively in justification, but also has Christ's own righteous character flowing through it. It is bearing the fruit of Christ himself. That's why it's called the fruit of the Spirit. It's the fruit of Christ which the Spirit is enabling us to bear. And this gets back to, again, the question of union with Christ. If we're united to Christ, we're united to the whole Christ together with all of his gifts, Christ says, it's not enough that I justify you. That, that's great. We, we say, fine, that's terrific. He said, no, 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 no. I'm too great of a Savior. I'm too gracious of a Redeemer to stop there. I'm going to sanctify you. I am going to conform you to my image. If we think of that as negative as law, we don't understand the greatness of Jesus Christ. That's gospel. To be told that I am actually, by his grace, going to be conformed to the image of Christ, that is gospel. Now then, there are commands, law. There is law. The third use of the law. The third use of the law is the law as a guide to Christians, telling them how they ought to live. But if we don't understand the gospel well, we will turn that back into the first use of the law without the gospel and say, the first use of the law is to condemn us. And we will condemn Christians who do not bear enough of the fruit of the Spirit. Instead of preaching the gospel in such a way that they will bear the fruit of the Spirit and then showing them what God requires as that which 
is, in fact, the fruit of the Spirit. So the gospel's always producing this, but then you have these calls in Scripture. Sanctification, I will sanctify you. I will conform you to the image of Christ. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. He made him the firstborn of many brethren. He's conforming us to the image of Christ. All of that is gospel. But then you have law. You have genuine commands given to Christians, but those commands are not to be sanctified. Those commands are to obey, to press on, to put to death the deeds of the flesh. In other words, sanctification is God's work in us. Obedience is our proper, reasonable response to that work. And he who began a good work in us will complete that work. Again, that's good news. So sanctification, as well as justification, is part of the gospel. And that's why I love the way the Heidelberg Catechism expresses this in question 114. Is it possible, then, for those converted to God to keep God's commandments perfectly? No, of course not, it says. Here's, here's what I love about it. It's so clear on two points. It kills legalism and antinomianism in one bold stroke. No, in no way, even the holiest Christians in this life attain only a slight beginning in that perfection, that holiness that God requires. And yet, every Christian endeavors earnestly to keep not just some of the laws, but all of the laws. In other words, we're like David in the Psalms. How I love thy law, O Lord. We are like like Paul in Romans 7, where he says, even when I don't do the things that I want to do, I know the law is good, and I want to do that. Wretched man that I am, how, how can it be that I'm doing the very things I don't want to do? That's not a carnal Christian. That's every believer. Every believer is simultaneously, every believer, no different classes of Christians, every believer who is justified is simultaneously making only a slight beginning in holiness in this life, and earnestly endeavoring and purposing to obey all of God's laws. Even when I sin, even when I break the law of God, I love it. I acknowledge that it is true. I acknowledge that God has a right to direct my steps. He has a right to expect this from me. And it is not the case that God likes to forgive, I like to sin, what a great relationship. And a genuine believer doesn't pick and choose where he'll obey and where he'll disobey. But every true Christian, every true believer is still dogged constantly by sin and falls every day. You're called to holy living, but how to grow in holiness? Come to Westminster Seminary, California's Transforming Grace Conference, January 17 and 18, 2014, to discover what the Bible says about growing in holiness and the Christian life. Join Mike Horton, W. Robert Godfrey, and others to learn how the same grace that saves you also transforms you. Go to wscal.edu slash conference 2014. wscal.edu slash conference 2014. Space is limited. Register today. Preaching is so important because it's foolish according to the scriptures. W. Robert Godfrey for Westminster Seminary, California. And by that, I think Paul meant that from a purely human point of view, preaching doesn't seem all that efficacious, all that sensible. There are voices in every period of the history of the church suggesting there are better ways to do things. We don't need preachers, we need priests. Or we don't need preachers, we need entertainers. But the Lord has appointed preachers because preachers bear his word as it's written and apply it to the heart and minds of God's people. And so the, by the power of the Holy Spirit, when the pastor is doing his work faithfully, the Word of God lives in his heart and is communicated to the hearts of God's people. Westminster Seminary, California. 
wscal.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. That seems so evidently biblical. And yet, that isn't really what we're seeing as we look out at evangelical Protestant Christianity today. There's, as we said at the outset, a lot of confusion. Some faithful pastors report that they're facing real antinomianism in their congregations. And then uh, there are parishioners who write to me, and and I know they write to you saying that they're experiencing what has sometimes been called neonomianism. That is the notion that God accepts us at least partly on the basis of our law-keeping. Antinomianism would be a rejection of, say, the Ten Commandments as God's abiding moral standard for the life of the Christian. How do we build a bridge between what you just said, so wonderfully really, summarizing what we say about justification and sanctification, to these two situations that we're both hearing about. Um, On the one hand, my people aren't showing any concern about obeying God's law. And on the other hand, all we ever hear from the preacher is do this, do this, do this. Yeah, see, this is the thing. I've thought about this a lot, Scott, because I have felt the same way. I've wondered sometimes, you know, when you're sitting in a circle of people who, who do not believe that the Bible clearly addresses questions of human sexuality, the Bible doesn't clearly address questions of how we should live in the body of Christ and treat each other. It's amazing that in the church itself, it's antinomian. And then in the very same circles, you hear a bunch of laws. Let me put it this way. You go to a liberal church and— You better recycle. They they catch you throwing a plastic bottle in the trash. You're in a lot of trouble. (laughs) It's just as legalistic as any, you know, Bob Jones church down the street. They just have different laws. I don't actually believe in antinomianism. It exists as a position, but practically— Practically. Everyone has a law. That's right. They might not like Moses' laws or God's law as articulated under Moses, but they will have a law. That's right. I think the real clash is between God-centered and rejection of God. So you have people who believe that God is the sovereign creator and lawgiver and redeemer, and then you have people who believe that we are the sovereign creators, lawgivers, and redeemers. Of ourselves. That's really the difference. It's not really between... Ant- we, we can be pressed into a false choice here with antinomianism. Really, it's breaking away from the Lord, casting off the chains of the Lord and his anointed Messiah. Whenever we cast off God's chains, we just willingly embrace slavery to another Lord who cannot liberate. It's not really antinomianism. People are... We are wired for the law. We go running toward laws. But laws that we like, laws that we think that we can pull off. So I don't think that we need to lighten up on the law because there's too much legalism or lighten up on the gospel because there's too much antinomianism. I think that we need to preach the law full strength, straight up without cutting it with water. And we need to preach the gospel full strength without any law in it. We need to preach both of those full strength and let God do his talking work through those two words. Because God the Holy Spirit uses the preaching of the law to do multiple things simultaneously, right? So if you really let the law be law, then the Spirit will use that to break those for whom Jesus died and whom the Father has loved from all eternity. He'll use that to break them and teach them their sin and drive them to Christ. At the same time, the Spirit is using that law word to norm and shape and guide his people. Right. 
The law has a certain job description. The gospel is an announcement. It's not a command. The gospel is itself an announcement about what God has done that needs to be published and proclaimed. And it's that gospel itself, we're told repeatedly in the New Testament, that is the means through which we're born again. We're actually born again through the speech of God, specifically the gospel. And it's not like you're making this up. Heidelberg Catechism question 65 says, since we're justified through faith, from where does this faith come? And we say, as Reformed Christians, the Holy Spirit works faith in our hearts through the preaching of the Holy Gospel and confirms it through the use of the Holy Sacraments. Yeah, which is right out of Romans 10, 12 through 17, a whole host of passages, Romans 1, 18, a whole host of passages that indicate to us that it is through this powerful speech of God that is called the gospel that we are born again to a new hope. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. We're justified in order that we might be sanctified. And so when you wrote The Gospel-Driven Life, now we can look back on that, it wasn't to set people free from being obedient to God, but it was, first of all, to clarify what the good news is, but with the intent that people would then come to faith and live out of that. One of my concerns is I'm, I'm really struck by the way Paul answers the question in Romans, after treating justification so clearly, I know what you're going to say. The more we sin, the more grace there is. Therefore, let's go sin our daylights out so there can be more grace. Shall we sin that grace may abound? Heaven forbid, how can we who have died to sin still live in it? And at that point, I think there are different things that we could hear people say today. Shall we be antinomians? Well, you shouldn't be, but You could be a carnal Christian and make it anyway. Or, no, don't you know that if you do, you'll lose your salvation? Or prove that you never were a Christian? Paul doesn't go down any of those routes. What Paul turns to is the gospel, neither license nor more law. Rather, he says, no, 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 wait, I'm not finished with the gospel. Justification isn't the only good news I have to tell you. Those who have been baptized into Christ's death have also been raised with him in the likeness of his resurrection so that they too have that resurrection life. Only then does Paul say, on the basis of this, since this is already true of you, stop presenting the members of your body to unrighteousness, to obey the desires of the flesh, but present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So, this is a different way of thinking. When, when I talk about the gospel-driven life, I'm not just talking about the justification-driven life. I'm, I'm saying if people come and they say, look, I don't care about sanctification, or they come and they say, you know, I really, I, I like justification, but don't talk to me about law because I don't like, I don't like law. I want to say, basically, in a historical terms, you're a Marcionite. You are basically saying, that there is a good God, the Redeemer, Jesus, and a bad God, the Father, Creator, Lawgiver. What a horrible thing to say to the one who sent his only begotten Son for your salvation. And there's Pentecost, he sent the Holy Spirit. Basically, you're pitting the Son against the Father and the Holy Spirit. The whole Trinity has gone out on a limb for you. The whole Trinity has accomplished everything for you. The whole Trinity is in this for the long haul for you. And so for you to, to imagine that Jesus has this gift called justification to save you from a father who, who wants to scold you every day and a Holy Spirit who wants to unite you to Christ and 
bear the fruit of the Spirit in your life. To say that that is not something that you would like is to misunderstand the gospel at a fundamental level. No. Here's what I tell people. If they say, you know, I'm struggling with this particular sin, first of all, join the crowd. Paul says he struggled with sin, but he loved the law. Do you agree with God that it's wrong? Oh, yeah, I do. Well, yeah, I thought you did. That's why you're in here wrestling over this. But just wanted to be clear, you don't believe you have a right to this, do you? You don't believe that you have a right to pick and choose which of God's commands you're going to obey. No, of course not. But I'm really struggling. Yeah, I know you're struggling. But the struggle itself is the, the progress of sanctification. And that's what we have to accept. Person who has not been baptized into Christ's death and raised with him in newness of life has absolutely no interest in wrestling with indwelling sin. It is not a concern. It doesn't bother the person. They may gain weight, and that bothers them. Their habit may bring them stress. It may hurt their marriage or their bank account. But they're not coming to you because they're worried about how they stand with God. Only a believer does that. And so the very fact that believers express this deep sense of struggling and often losing the war, often losing the battle, is evidence of God's work in their life. And to those people, I say, you know that Christ has not only been crucified for you, but he's been raised for you, and that you've been raised in him. You are united to him. And so this is the good news. This is part of the gospel itself. To those who believe that they can have Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord, I tell them, look, Paul says here, if you have been crucified with Christ, you have been raised with Christ. His his very argument is against that position. You cannot say that you are justified. You cannot say you have the forgiveness of sins but you do not want these other benefits of Christ. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.